Well, good morning again. How are we doing? I just need to get up uh, my other notes here for this morning. As I've already mentioned to you, my name is Glenn, uh, lead pastor here at the Rock Church. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we actually have one left that looks all two on the table up front here. So people are coming in and taking Bibles. That's great. It'd be good to have one with you this morning, every morning really at church uh, so that we can look at it. But in chapter 13, we're going to be only focusing on three verses, and yet really the whole chapter is remarkable. So today we're getting to conclude our Desire Wisdom series. Uh, we started uh, nine weeks ago. This is the 10th week in this series, and I think for most of us it's truly been uh, a remarkable series, not because of me, but because of God's Word and what He has been saying to us. Uh, what we've learned, we, we wanted to, to study this because the, the reality is, is that we all need wisdom, amen? I mean, we, we, we live in a world that thinks it's wise, right? Wise in its own eyes at least. And uh, there's a lot of information out there. I mean, you can Google just about everything, right? And you can get a lot of information, a lot of news, a lot of knowledge, and a lot of facts. You can. It's awesome. And we've learned through this series, I hope, that we're, we're kind of bankrupt in that area when it comes to really godly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that helps us uh, not make mistakes, not make bad decisions. We learn from the school of hard knocks in our world today, and it's really not a very good school. Because the reality is, is that without godly wisdom, without the wisdom that comes from above, uh, we end up uh, with lives that we go down bad roads, wrong roads, and we have to hopefully make a turnaround, but sometimes we end up at the end of a road, and quite literally, it's a bit of a train wreck. And so one of the things that we established and we learned in our very first message was, and I believe I have it on screen, um, well, no, I don't. I'm going to go back to that. Um, maybe it's a little later. You know what? I didn't put it up. It's this. It's the big idea that we learned in our first message. You can have all the knowledge in the world and yet without wisdom still make bad decisions. So I don't know about you, but I've got many t-shirts over the years where, you know, I tried to line up the facts, do a spreadsheet, you know, positive negatives, and, and what would be the best decision, and, you know, I get, I get pressure from this place and that place, and then there's my own pressure because I really want to do this, and so, well, what's the harm in just giving it a try, right? Bad decisions, bad decisions. So what we've also learned, I think, is this. The Bible as a whole, all 66 books, is the book of wisdom. It's the book of wisdom. It's God's Word, after all. And so, obviously, we can come to it. And over the past 10 weeks, we've been going specifically to what are called books of wisdom in the Bible, in the Scripture, and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs written by Solomon, the wisest man of all time, who asked God for one thing, and that was wisdom. And God gave it to him, along with wealth and a number of other things. And he kind of squandered it. We saw that. But we've noticed that everything written in these books, the books written by Solomon in the whole Old Testament for that matter, is all pointing to the ultimate source of wisdom, which is Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh. And so we've seen that everything is pointing to Him as the perfect source of all the wisdom that we would ever, ever need and want in this life. And so that's why we then started looking at parables. And it's remarkable, these, these teachings of Jesus, which are, you know, sometimes they make your mind kind of go, huh, like, what is he saying? And as we're going to see today, they, the disciples even had to ask, what are you saying? What do these things mean? Why are you speaking to us in parables? But we've seen that Jesus' whole point, well, there's a number, but one of them in the parables is, is that this is how you become wise, is understanding what I'm talking about. 
understanding what God wants you to know and to hear. So in chapter 13 uh, of Matthew, I, I've, I've kind of I got it in my notes here. Chapter 13 of Matthew is the bomb when it comes to parables. I mean, really, if you, if, this is when Jesus actually launches from his public ministry when he's been preaching and teaching and healing and feeding people. And, and this is where he really launches into the parables. And it's an amazing, amazing chapter when it comes to parables. There, this chapter alone has six parables. There's the parable of the sower and the sower explained. There's the parable of the weeds, and later the weeds explained. The mustard seed and leaven, uh, hidden treasure, and the pearl of great price, which are the two parables we're going to look at today. And then finally, there's the parable of the net. And they continue to just go and build upon one another. They're amazing. The parable of the sower and the, the weeds are, the parables, those two, are two of the most powerful. They're extremely powerful. And so some of you might be asking today, well, why are we concluding then with these these two little parables, just three verses long, and not one of these immense and important parables? Well, because they're actually a summation. They're actually an amazing summation of everything Jesus has been teaching, but also especially in the parables about why He's here, why He came in the very, very first place. So let's start by looking at why Jesus turned to teaching through parables at this point in His ministry. It's approximately two years in. He's he's, he's defeated the devil who tried to tempt him. He's been calling his disciples to follow him, and he basically goes, let's go. Let's go into ministry. And it's two years later, and we arrive at this point in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. I'll put them on screen and, and, and read them with me. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. So so Jesus has left the house of one of his disciples, uh, where he's been teaching for an extended period of time, and he gets in a boat just a short way out uh, from the sea, because like he is a scientist, right? He's an engineer. He's, he understands these things that in order to speak to a great multitude, and at this time, the, the theologians and commentators and experts would expect there's probably three to 4,000 people waiting to hear from him. So he's out on the water and his voice carries. But all of his disciples are there as well. And there's a great crowd. The crowds are following him primarily for two reasons. Free sushi, <laughs> Free food, because he's been turning, you know, fish and loaves into multiples and feeding 5,000 people on more than one occasion, twice. So they're following him because this guy's a banquet. He provides for everything we need, like, and it's good food. It's good stuff. And secondly, because of his miracles, he's healing everybody. Everyone that's brought to him, paralytics, casting out demons, He's healing everybody. The word has spread, and that's why they're following him. But it's at this point, and I remember when we went through the Gospel of Matthew many years ago as a church, I remember saying to you at this point in time, it's at this point where we realize that Jesus is not into crowds. Not so much. I mean, he usually, basically, we think of him as the 12 that followed him. Uh, when he rises from the dead on the last day before he, when he, before he, 40 days before he ascends, there's only 120 disciples, men and women, left. So he's really not into crowds. And the reason is because he starts, he sees that they're not believing. They're not really trusting. And he's not into that. 
And we look at great crowds and large churches today, and we think that's an awesome thing, right? Obviously, a church that has, you know, thousands of people, and, and it's obviously, you know, because it's a great church and it's a great preacher and all the rest of it. And the disciples probably saw, thought the same thing of Jesus in that day. They're thinking, yeah, look, he's got to be the Messiah because of all these people who are following him. Jesus sees through all of this because he sees our hearts. And he's just not into crowds. He's into you and into me, into saving us. But he's not into the crowds for the reasons why they're following him. So he starts by telling them, first of all, the parable of the sower. And then the question is, why? And that's what the disciples wanted to know, too. In verse 10, it says, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you doing that? And, well, this was a fair question, actually, for them to be asking him that at this point in time, because they, they were used to, Jesus didn't invent the parable, right? Greek philosophers, rabbis have been using parables as a way to teach an important meaning of, of a subject, an important idea to people for quite some time. But, but the way that they would do it is they would tell the parable to their, their students, their, to their disciples, to their followers. They'd let them ruminate on it for a few minutes be in them, and have them go, what is he talking about? And then they would expound it. They would tell them. And the reason why they would do it this way is they wanted them to be able to discover deep and important ideas, and they would show them how to do it so they could figure these things out for themselves and be wise. And so with the parable of the sower, Jesus appears to be finished at this point. That's why they ask him this question. It appears like he's finished, and he's not going to explain. Well, Jesus does answer, and he says this, to you has been given to know, look at this, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So this is Jesus' response to the question that he's being asked. To his disciples directly who asked this question, Jesus is saying, he, he, he is, he's saying, they've been given, you've been given, the mysterion in Greek is the word, uh, literally means mystery, and our translation calls it the secrets of the kingdom. So once again, the, the language to them would be totally understood. In that day when they would hear this, they'd go, okay, we, we know what he's talking about, we know where he's, what he's getting at. It's different than uh, what we would think about when it comes to mysteries. When I was a kid, and I'm going to age myself here, but my favorite mystery books were the Hardy Boys, you know, the little detectives about my age. You know. They would figure out great things. And then as I got older, I got into spy novels and Jean le Carré and, and many others, right? These are mysteries. This is not the kind of thing they're talking about here. It's not the kind of thing they're talking about at all. In, in those days, these mysteries were the secrets that all religions and all philosophies that people followed had. It was kind of like the secret handshake, but it was really more about the knowledge that you would have past the initiation stage. So once you would be become part of, quite frankly, often cults, false religions, uh, you would learn the secrets of that religion, the mysteries of that religion, and now you'd be an insider, you'd be someone in the know. Now, we already met this idea uh, early on in the series that we've been doing now, and that was when we discovered a, a new sect, a new religion popping up in the days of Jesus called Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means literally knowledge. 
And Gnostics came about at that time, and they, they basically said, yeah, this religion thing, this Jesus thing, it's good, it's great, you know, salvation, awesome. But you know what? Really, in order for humans to flourish, to really become successful and have a great, happy, and joyful life, what we need is more knowledge. Friends, that is the primary religion of our day today. That is the primary religion of our day today, and Gnosticism began at the same time as the ministry of Jesus. And that's really what it's competing with in our world today. Jesus then says, those, look at this, who have been paying attention to what He's been doing and saying and have believed in Him, they are the ones that He, the Holy Spirit, is revealing just a glimpse into the secrets of the kingdom of God. And they will receive even more illumination is what He's saying here. But to those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, who have not trusted Him, in fact, who refuse to trust Him and believe in Him, even the glimpse, even the glimpse, the barely flickering flame of the Imago Dei, the image of God that is resonant in every one of you in this room and every human being in this world, Jesus is saying that flame will go out. That's what this is literally saying. And then Jesus concludes with, this is why. This is why, guys. This is why I speak to… Now imagine, listen for a second, come on, look at the picture here. He's in a boat. There's three or 4,000 people there. His disciples are asking him the question, and he's going, this is why they… <laughs> they can hear this. This is why they… This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they, don't, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So let's be clear and very honest about this, because many, many of us don't like to see Jesus this way. He's judging them, isn't He? He's passing judgment on them, right in front of them, right to their faces. He's sitting in a boat, looking at the crowds, and He's saying these things to them. Jesus basically said, says out loud, this is why I speak to them in parables. It's because they've seen my miracles. Come on. That's why they're following. They've seen the miracles. They've had their bellies filled. They had their diseases healed and seen people risen from the dead. They've heard me preaching about the kingdom of God and, and that I want them to enter in the kingdom and be saved and be with me and my heavenly Father for eternity. They've been hearing that for years and years, but here it is. They do not see, will not see, do not hear, will not hear. They do not understand. It's tragic. It's the case today. It's the case today, and we're going to see this in our parable. So let's look at the first of our two parables today, and it's found in verse 44 of 13, where it says this, the kingdom of heaven, there it is, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy this field. Um, something you may have heard said by, by myself or uh, certainly I think by myself, and that is this, uh, that the greatest preachers of all time are in this order. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, fill in your blank after that. 
Jesus is a preacher, right? That's, that's one of the, I mean, he's a savior. He, he's the son of God, yes. But he said in Mark 1, he said this, let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also. For that is why I came here. He came to preach about the kingdom. And so every preacher, I would suggest, that is worth his salt should know this and should be modeling then his preaching after Jesus, first of all. I mean, first notice his use of this, repetition. I remember in grade eight, Mrs. Nevin, I can never forget this woman. And at and, and one point I was like, she was repeating herself, repeating herself, repeating herself. And I questioned her and she goes, Glenn, repetition, repetition, repetition. That's the way you learn. That was Mrs. Nevin. And this is Jesus. And he's constantly saying the use of the repetition, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That's what he came to preach. That's what he came to preach consistently. If you read all of chapter 13, you'll see the word kingdom 12 times. Eight times that word kingdom is used in the phrase the kingdom of heaven, which means the kingdom of God. Same thing. Secondly, even in this short parable, we see another of the keys that we should pick up. Jesus always preaches into the context of the people who are hearing him, which is what preachers are supposed to do because they're going to understand. And that, that's what these parables were all about. He preaches into the everyday life of those who are living, living and, and it's about the, who are listening to him, and it's about social, economic, and spiritual ideas. But he always tells stories related to what they will get, because it, it's part of their life. And so that's why he actually tells this parable, this one-verse parable. It's remarkable. The economic world of that, let's talk about the money, which is what he's talking about. There's money involved here. Uh, the economic world of that day was very different in one very fundamental way than the world that we have today. In the world today, we have banks. Right? We have places where you can take your money, if you have any left at the end of the day, right? And you can put it in the bank or you can put it into investments. You can put it into trusts. You can put it into safety deposit boxes. You can take it to a place and put it somewhere where it'll not only be safe, but hopefully it'll multiply. It'll grow, right? It's a great thing. Compound interest is awesome. So in that day, sure, sure they, had, they had gold, they had silver, right? And, and they even had coins. The most uh, popular coin in that day was the denarius, which was a, a silver coin. It was worth approximately a day's wage. And so they had that. But what they didn't have were these banks. So for safekeeping, what they would literally do is what we saw the guy in the parable of the talents the other day, last week I think it was, and with the one talent, they literally would find a field, find a place, and go dig a hole and bury it. They would hide it. And so the idea, of course, was that this would be for safekeeping. But here's what would happen. Um, besides the fact that they would see a tree and they'd so many steps out and over here, because, you know, they'd want it to be well hid, right? So, like, it's not like you'd leave a, a, like a stake and go, but my treasure's here. No, it'd be well hid. The grass is back. It's well hid. So you'd have to, know, like, landmarks, you know, and, and, of course, trees fall down, whatever. But also, there, there was, uh, people didn't live as long in those days, and there were wars, and there were, there were times when your property was absconded and taken away from you, and you were put in jail and prison. All to say... The person that he's talking about in this parable, uh, that there's a chance that what's happened here is he's actually come upon someone else's stash who's no longer there, or that the new owner has no idea that the treasure is there. So in this story, they would have completely understood what Jesus is getting at. 
completely. The person he's talking about here happened to find this treasure by some means which we don't know about. I mean, possibly he was a hired hand, possibly he's just walking by and, and, and something seems odd, something sticking out after erosion. We don't know. But he happens upon this treasure and he buys the field from the current owner who is not aware that his property has this treasure buried on it. So again, in that day, when they hear this stuff, they're like, yeah, <laughs> I know, my uncle found a treasure. You know, like that people know that this is something that happens. So there's an important key to this short story, isn't there? Do you see it? There's a very important key to this story. The important key to the story is as far as this man is concerned, this treasure, it's huge. <laughs> it, it, it's unbelievably huge. This is way beyond lotto. This is like, well, okay, it's a huge lotto. It's going to set him up for life. It is that huge. I mean, its value must have been absolutely beyond anything this man has ever seen. Now, that's great, but there must be a few more questions rising up in your mind at this point, right? Many people have thought about this parable, and first, it's possible that some people might think that Jesus is actually endorsing an immoral act, isn't it? I mean, it's, I mean doesn't, shouldn't this guy just go to the, the owner of the property and say, hey, you know, I, like, I just want to be honest, and you know, like, I, I think there's something over there. Don't know if that's yours or that you didn't know it's there, but it's on your property. Actually, in, in, in that day, like finders keepers was the number one law, right? It was, literally it was, finders keepers. But the truth is, I want you to think about it. He did. He did do the right thing not the unethical thing. I mean, think about it. Look again. First he finds it, and then he covers it up. He's so overjoyed that he has found this treasure that he liquidates. Now, he's joyful first, and then he liquidates everything he has, all of his earthly possessions, and then, realtors will love this part, he makes the owner of the property an offer. Now, think about that. You get an offer for a piece of property, and you're like, wow, that's a pretty good offer. The guy's sold everything he's got. And it's like a pretty good, like, why do you want my property? Now, think about it again even further. If the owner was aware of the treasure on his property and he was getting a really good offer from his property and he was aware that that was there, what would, the, what would he do? Well, he would go and dig it up and say, sure, give me your money. Now you can have the property. But he doesn't. So finally, really, if this man is is or were a dishonest man, wouldn't he have just stolen the treasure at first, right, when he found it? And so the story ends, the, the sale completes, and the man in our story is now the owner of the property and its great treasure. Amen. We'll come back to this. Let's move on to the next parable. In verses 45 and 46, it says, again, Yes, repetition. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought this parable, this, uh, this pearl. So again, in those days, uh, pearls were uh, probably beyond diamonds and gold, even bitcoins in our culture today. They were, uh, they were the ultimate value. Pearls could be literally, uh, in, in our terms today, uh, like art, uh, sometimes millions and millions of dollars in equivalent value today. So they were really high value. People would know that. And so this parable needs virtually no further 
explanation other than to declare the obvious. Here we have a person who's a trader. Uh, he, he's a merchant who's, whose current trade involves exclusively, it would appear, pearls. This guy is like a collector. I don't know how many people collect. I was thinking about collectors today. You know, how, many, how many of you collect coins or stamps? I, I'm thinking people do that. I'm like, man, that seems like such a waste of time. Sorry if that's what you do. But, you know, but people collect things, right? I mean, some people collect Star Wars action figures. I don't know why they would do that, but some do. And, but there's this idea of collecting. This guy seems to be a collector. He's like pearls, pearls. He just, he's focused on that completely and totally, And then he finds this one pearl. And it's important that we see this. He sees incredible value in it. Some people see incredible value in the collection of coins and stamps that you and I don't. Or baseball cards, hockey cards. He also, because of this, because he's so full of joy that he found this pearl, the one thing I've been looking for all my life. He's willing to sell it, sell everything he's got, all his other pearls, everything he's got, all his possessions to buy this one pearl. So there we have it. Two very simple parables. Very simple. But what do they mean? What's the point, Jesus? What does he want them to know? Let's start again with the first man. Looking at the first man again, Jesus wants us to see this about him, which is different about the second guy. The man who finds the hidden treasure is not, listen, he's not like Indiana Jones, right? He's not like searching, right? Looking for the the lost ark, right? Uh, He's not like a guy going along the beach with one of those metal detectors, right? Like, you know, which is, again, weird. I've seen them in Southern California. People go, and apparently they find stuff, right? But he's not that. That's not this guy at all. It's not him at all. This guy is walking around and coming upon this treasure purely by accident. Totally surprises him. And he's so surprised by what he's finding, he's so overjoyed that, again, he sells everything. And look, this, this, friends, is how some of us have found Jesus, isn't it? It's how some people in the world today find Jesus, how they've entered the kingdom of God. You weren't looking for God at all, right? You weren't searching out Jesus or the kingdom. No one was preaching at you constantly going, oh, you need to come to church. You need to, you need to give your life over to Jesus. Your life will no longer be a train wreck because you need... No, this was a complete surprise. Seeking, most of us are running around on a daily basis seeking our kingdom come first, aren't we? I mean, come on. Even as Christians, our kingdom... No, in, in this particular case, this is how some of us have come to Christ. And this man is so happy, he, he's, he's so happy with everything. In fact, he's so happy that God is going to reorder everything about his life that he's willing to just give it all up now. Well, that's one way. That's one way to be surprised by Jesus. So then look at this also. This man sees this treasure and he's changed. He's completely changed. But remember what Jesus has said earlier about why he's preaching in parables to the crowd. These two parables are now directed to his disciples, by the way. Uh, He said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so that may also be some of you gathered here today. It's representative of many people in our world today. They, they see the, the kingdom of God through the, the witness and testimony of the church. Hopefully they do see that. 
and, and they even hear someone preach, but the truth is they don't see. They don't hear. There's no sense of joy when they hear that God loves them and died for their sins. It's nothing. It's just empty. It's more like, why should I care about that? Or maybe it's just that you're not there yet. You are seeing, you are hearing, but Jesus and His kingdom haven't taken over your heart yet. There's no joy. You're still, you're still searching for joy and happiness under the sun. You're still thinking, you know what, here's what I can do. I, I, good. Yeah, I, I know there's that Jesus thing there, and, and hopefully before I die, you know, I can also get Him on my tool belt. But up until that point in time, I'm going to give it my best effort to find happiness and joy and success in this life under the sun. Maybe that's where some of us are at. Two words. Be careful. Be careful. Now, that's different from the second man, isn't it? The second man, he's searching. He's constantly searching. He's on the hunt, right? Like, he, he's out there looking. And from the story would appear, he's definitely interested, almost exclusively, as I said, in pearls. He's, he's looking all the time for pearls. And it's a beautiful picture, really, of people in the world today who are, and, and some of us get frustrated with this because we have friends, people we love, and they're constantly searching, right? And, and we're like, Jesus, <laughs> like, you can end your search right here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but you know what, seriously, I, I got to travel the world, and you know, like, um, you know, I, I, I want to look at what Buddha has to say, you know, and, uh, you know, I, um, you know, there's, 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 you know, Muhammad, and, and, you know, I need to check those things out too, and, and, uh, and you know, um, there's, a, there's all kinds of philosophies, and maybe, maybe the truth is, you know, there are many, 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 many different ways to God, and wouldn't it be good if I, if I had, you know, and, and so, the, and again, I, the words that you need to hear are, be careful, but, but at least this person is searching. And, and, and the important difference between this guy and the person who's just trying to find meaning in life in all different kinds of places is that this person has in mind what the perfect pearl looks like. The Holy Spirit has spoken to this person and said, you will know it when you see it. So that's a good thing that I think we can see. So what then does the pearl and the hidden treasure, for that matter, represent? At the end of the day, what, what do these two parables represent? What, what, are they, what is Jesus, who's constantly using the... Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Have you seen? Have you heard? <laughs> do you understand yet? I know, I know most of you do, but I'm just asking the questions rhetorically. If you have, then two things would be immediately true in your response, and it would be this. First, you will respond, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 31. If 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 you understand, if you've heard these things, seen these things, and you understand, then the first thing that you will be doing from this point forward in your life as a Christian is what Jesus said, and He declares this to them, seek first, right? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. All these things being what He's already preached about in Luke chapter 12, which is, look at the lilies of the field, how they are clothed by your heavenly Father. Why are you worrying about what you will wear? I will look after you. What about the birds of the air? I'm feeding them. Why are you worrying about what you're going to eat? You're now mine. You're my children. I will look after you. But then he says to them, seek first 
the kingdom of God. Now, some of you might be sitting here today and going, well, Glenn, it's the first day of the week. That's what I'm doing. I'm seeking first the kingdom of God here on Sunday morning. Thank you. Check the box. Done. Oh, dear. No. Seek first the whole kingdom of God. The whole kingdom of God. And then second, you will, you will, Christian, just like these two men did in these parables today, do what Jesus then says next in Luke 12. The most, I'm, we've already been through this, but I'm repeating it today for emphasis. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags. By the way, those talents we looked at last week, that's what they came in, money bags, silver coins and money bags, that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do these treasures represent? The hidden treasure and the pearl. And it should be obvious. I know you can see it. Jesus has been repeating it over and over. It's the kingdom of God. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So let me, in conclusion this morning, let me give you three very practical, I hope, secrets of the kingdom that Jesus reveals in these three verses. Secrets, because that's what we're looking at, right? Secrets of the kingdom. Number one is the secret to entry. Now, now there are probably, let me see if I can, um, oh dear. Yeah, there we go. There we go. The secret to entry. Two primary ways to enter the kingdom of God. We've seen the tape. There are probably others, um, ways to enter the kingdom of God. But in the first parable, um, you're not even looking as we've seen, and Jesus surprises you, and when you see what you stumbled upon, you immediately understand. You immediately recognize Him. You're, you're in. You, you, it's, it's a shock to you. I, I've, I've met people like this when I served at Union Gospel Mission many years ago. I mean, people would come before we, they would get a meal, and they would hear someone preach, and, uh, but they were probably drinking and, and or on drugs and didn't really hear anything. But when they were sober and in the drug and alcohol recovery program and they heard the gospel for the first time, they'd be like, what? And, and, and the, change, the change in them was remarkable. As a Christian, it's one of the things in my life that gave me such confidence in the truth of the gospel that Jesus does heal and change people even today. Amen? is when you see these, these immediate turnabouts, these immediate healings and changes of life. And so that's a secret to the entry of the kingdom of God. Some people are going to be like that. But more people, more people quite likely are going to be like the second, who have been searching for a long time, maybe even down the wrong roads, that have had their own secret understandings and teachings. But you keep looking because you just sense that the truth wasn't in those other things, but that the truth is out there. And you just have to find it. Then you saw, you heard, you understood the gospel. You understood the gospel. And so one of the things we need to see here, I want to make, make sure we see this point on this, this right here, is that, that, that this is not about, well, I can, I can buy my salvation, right? This is not, I mean, the gospels, Jesus, all of the apostles make that very clear. You and I, we, we can't do anything to get God's approval and acceptance. It's all what He has done. And that's why when you see in these two stories, they are filled with joy first, and then they sell everything. The response of being filled with joy is to say, okay, now that I've got this treasure, this great pearl, the thing that 
I've wanted, I, I'm going to give my whole life to it, all my possessions to it. Well, that's the second secret. It's the secret to the Christian life. The secret to the Christian life, you guys are going to love this because Jesus is repetitive. It's about being all in with Him, guys. It's about being all in with Jesus and His kingdom versus the kingdoms of this world. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to get to it because we're going to be going into the gospel of Luke starting next week when we begin our Advent series, and then we're going to keep going and go through the whole gospel. But when you go through that gospel, you're going to see that Jesus, he's worried about his disciples. The main worry that he has is the attraction of this world and money and possessions and the kingdoms of this world that are going to draw them away from him. Not that they're going to be lost for salvation, but they're going to be lost for any value and help that they might be to the expansion of his kingdom and to others in the kingdom of God today. It's remarkable. Let me ask you this question. Where's the happiest place on earth? Anybody know where the happiest place on earth is? If you win the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup, everybody wants to go there, right? Come on, it's in California. It's called Disneyland, right? It's the happiest place on earth. It's, what we're all seeking is, you know, they've got a place over in Florida there, and, and it's, uh, it's called the Magic, what? Kingdom, right? Well, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not down on going to Disneyland, but the reality is, I mean, I got three boys, got the T-shirts, you know, so three trips to California, one to Florida, you know, got the T-shirts, um, had the credit card debt that's finally been paid off, Right? So, so here's my point, though. My point is this. That's just one little example of the kind of things that we are more than willing to give our money and resources and our lives to that are kingdoms of this world, amusement. We are more than willing to do that, to attempt to buy our own happiness in this life by giving to the kingdoms of this world, and this world is really good at making those kingdoms look better than anything that Jesus has to offer in this life today. That's what they do. I know from my past experience, as many of you know. So, friends, I just want to suggest this to you. Count the costs of all of these things, including Disneyland. Listen, it's awesome, okay? But count the costs. Count the costs. Because it's all about investing in those things or about investing in the expansion of his kingdom. I love the story of the early church. It's why we planted the Rock Church. It was put on my heart to come here and plant this church. And the early church is about two to three months old. Uh, Peter has preached the most incredible sermon uh, of all time, one of the great sermons. 5,000 people come to Jesus on that first day of the day of Pentecost. The church starts to grow. Immediately persecution happens. You get to Acts chapter 4. And listen, I'm going to tell you something. This is my prayer for us as a church. Has been my prayer for us as a church since we planted this church. And it's going to be my prayer until the day that the baton is handed for myself to whoever pastors this church after me. But it's the hope that all of you who are part of the core of this church will get this. Because here it is in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, is the result of people who have said, no, you know what? That treasure, that pearl, that Jesus and his kingdom, it's it. And it's why the early church exploded. And quite frankly, it's why today it's not so much. Read with me what it says. It says in verse 32, Now, 
Oh boy, I gotta go back. There we go. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's the word koinonia, where we get the word fellowship, right? And it goes on, and I'll bring one more up in a second. And, and with great power, the apostles, the leaders of the church, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the elders, the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as had need. And then this little anecdote is put in there. Thus, yes, here it is, Joseph, who was also called the Apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, no kidding. <laughs> Look what he did. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a what? Sold a field. That belonged to him. And he brought the money and laid it, laid it at the apostles' feet. He completely took his hands off it, gave it all. Well, the last thing that was on screen is this. The last secret to the kingdom is this. It's the secret to joy, guys. It's the secret to joy. Joy is much better than happiness. Happiness is temporary. You can buy a little bit of happiness at the Magic Kingdom. You can buy a little bit of happiness through travel, through a new car, through new things. You can. You're going to be excited about it. You ever notice this, though? That it's like when you first fall in love, right? Or you get that new car, and then all of a sudden, you know, three months later, it gets a dent in a parking lot, and it's like, oh, Right? But you notice that no matter what you get that you're really happy about and, and overjoyed about, that the gloss seems to come off, <laughs> even in the relationships. And it's a struggle. It's because we, we don't understand the difference between joy and happiness. One is temporary. One is constant. But here's the deal. For the Christian, if you're a Christian, it's kind of like, this is the only way. Your joy is found in the kingdom of God. It's found in being with Christ every moment of every day and being on mission with Him in everything every day. In your work, in your play, in your family, in your marriage, in every way, you're in with Him first. And your, your resources, which is your time, your talent, and your treasure, are given to Him. You, it, listen, listen. The best things that you've ever given to yourself, in, yourself to in your life, there's always been that momentary time in your life, hasn't there been, when you go, this is the best job ever. How long does that last? This is the best job ever. Being called to ministry and mission with Jesus Christ. So, friends, let me close by asking you this. Do you desire these things? Do you desire these things? Do you desire a joy that will surpass all understanding? I think we all do. I think we all do. We started the series 10 weeks ago, and we called it Desire Wisdom. I think most of you should be able to say with me today what we really want to say is that we're desiring Jesus. Amen? We're desiring Jesus. And why would that be? Well, it might be because, let me go back to this. I put them out of order, and I didn't get it up on screen. It would be this. It's because nothing else matters more. Even wisdom so that we can have a better... No, we need to desire Jesus because nothing else matters more. Pray with me, would you?